uniquely Christian. For it is not the fact that we are good people that makes us Christian, is it? It is our beliefs that drive moving us towards the type of ethic that we have. But it is our beliefs that fuel this. And so over these eight weeks, we had an introductory week. In seven weeks, we are looking at seven core essential beliefs that make up what it means when we call ourselves Christian. You know, you may have someone come to the door and they may call themselves Christian, and we have different uh, faith traditions that come to our door. We had one this week that came to our door and wanted to tell us about their faith, but they're not Christian. And it's not to say this is not a uh, put down. It's just... The same, uh, in the same way that if I were to come to you and say, man, I just baked the best cherry pie you can ever possibly imagine. I'd love for you to have a slice, you know? And you cut that thing open, you take a bite, and it's got blueberries in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, I can tell you it's cherry pie, but if there's blueberries in the pie, it is not a cherry pie. And, uh, you know, it's not derogatory. It's just that words have to mean something. And so over these eight weeks, we are taking a time to pause. And there is certainly application that comes out of what our beliefs are. But we are taking time to pause and reflect on the bare essentials of what it means to be a Christian. Growing up in uh, the tradition I did, it seems that there were times when everything rose to the level of essential. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. If you've ever, when you got married, you know, some people put the, the toilet paper under the roll and some put it over. I fix that every time my wife does it wrong. I won't tell you which way I go. But you know, these are non-essential things. But you know, if everybody treats something that is non-essential as essential, such as toilet paper, That is not a fun place to live and be, yes? Does this make sense? And so over over this period of time, we're taking time to reflect on what should we actually care about and what can we just not sweat nearly as much. And what we've seen so far are the first uh, four critical doctrines, essential beliefs of Christianity. And today we focus on the fifth. The first four are these, authority. For the Christian, there is an authority that lies outside of themselves. And this authority is found in the person of God and the revelation of God, what he says. And what God says, we have in a recorded form, and it's what we look at every single week in church, the Bible. And so for the Christian, the authority for the Christian is not what they think is best, not what they like the most. The authority for the Christian is rooted in the nature of God, who he is. And what he says. And the most accessible, lasting form of revelation that we have is the scriptures. There are other, there there were other uh, revelatory informational moments, yes? There were anything when Christ was on earth that he said and did was what God says because he was God. And so when he spoke, whatever he said and did was revelatory. But like John says at the end of his gospel, If I were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, the books in the world would not be able to contain all that he said and he did. But we have access to this book, authority. And for the Christian, their authority is not what they think. It is what this book, what God says. The second core teaching 
of Christianity is the Trinity. This is particularly confusing. But the Trinity, who is God? That's really the question we're asking when we come to the Trinity. Who is God? And for the Christian, they understand that God is tri-personal. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three persons, and each person is fully God, and yet there is one God. God is tri-personal. God is Trinity. The, sec- the third core doctrine of the faith is the doctrine of sin. This really comes down to the question, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with us? And for the Christian, the answer to this question is that our problem is not that we didn't have better examples. Our problem is not our age. It is not that we're hungry, tired, or exhausted, you know? Our problem is that we are sinners by nature, that is by birth, and by practice. We are sinners. The fourth core doctrine of the faith now takes us and we make a turn for these last four. And we start to look now directly at the person and the work and the results of the life of one man whom Christianity is completely centered around, the man Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at who he is. Who is Jesus? And we saw that Jesus was not just a good man. He wasn't just a great teacher, although he was a good man and a good teacher. We saw that Jesus was fully God, fully human, two natures existing in one person. Fully human, fully God, two natures existing in one person. And this doctrine... The person of Christ really leads us into what we are going to talk about this morning and for the next two weeks. If you remember, when we started to look at the reality of Jesus, I let us down these three questions, these three ideas. Whenever we think about Jesus, when anybody is starting to think about Jesus, they have to start thinking about these three questions. First, was Jesus a real person? And remember last week I said we're not even going to talk about that because nobody really denies that. Almost nobody denies that. So Jesus was a real person. Second, we started to look at the idea, if he was a real person, what kind of person was he? And here is where the diversion comes. And that's what we talked about all last week. There are many in our world, especially today, that would say that God, that Jesus, I mean, is a great person, that he was a teacher, but he was not God. If you remember with me last week, we saw that for the first 1,500 years of church history, there was a lot of misunderstanding around Jesus, but nobody thought that Jesus wasn't God. It was his humanity that was more in question. But in our day, that's not the case, is it? It is his divinity that is overwhelmingly questioned outside of the church and sometimes inside. But we saw last week that Jesus, when we look at this idea, this question, if Jesus was a real person, what kind of person was he? We saw that he was fully God, fully man, two natures existing in one person. Now, this brings us to our topic for this morning. Not the person of Christ, but this morning we're going to look at what is called the work of Christ. In other words, what we're going to look at is what did Jesus do when he was on earth. And when we speak of what did he do, we're going to narrow it down to one specific moment at the very end, the climactic moment in all of the scriptures made up of his death, burial, and resurrection. And his resurrection is what proves who he was and gives power to his death. But specifically what we're looking at this morning is this question. What did Jesus' death accomplish? What did Jesus' death accomplish. 
The title of this sermon is The Work of Christ. It could very well be called The Death of Christ. What did Jesus' death accomplish? And this leads us to the third of the three questions that I introduced last week. Was Jesus a real person? If he was a real person, what kind of person was he? And the third question, if he was God, how does that change things? Now, if Jesus was God, it changes everything as it concerns what actually happened that night 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for our sins. That language, the language of the Bible found in Romans chapter 5, is really the language that we're investigating this morning. And as we've done throughout this series, as we investigate this question, we're going to do so from really two angles. We're going to look at a historical survey of how those throughout church history have understood this doctrine. And secondly, we're going to take a look and survey the Bible and see what it says. So first off, As we orient our attention towards the work of Christ, what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? What did his death accomplish? I want to orient your mind, and I want you to invite you to turn to this passage, even though I'll have it up on the screen, because I'll refer to it throughout my sermon. Uh, A passage found in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If you're using one of our blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 914. It's a very simple and short little verse, although very powerful in meaning. And here's what it says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is a loaded statement. And throughout Romans, Paul explains what he means by this before and after. But... As we start to think our minds, as we start to allow our minds to consider the death of Christ, I want to start bringing our attention back throughout this entire sermon to this idea. What does it mean that Christ died for us? There have been lots of different uh, ways that theologians have understood that question. There have been lots of different ways that theologians have looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And so we're going to look at what they meant as they looked at Romans 5, 8, and we're going to try to come to an understanding of what was a consensus throughout church history based on the teaching of what the Bible teaches. And throughout, when I give other opinions on the death of Christ, I want to try to give you some kind of charitable understanding of why they believed that way. All right, so let's get right into it. As we've done every week, we're going to look at six stages of church history. I'll move fast through some, and we'll take a little more time on others. The first period of church history is called the early church fathers. It's the first 50 years, uh, starting 100 to 150, as the church is being built. As those who were the apostles, those who had lived with Christ and had gone out throughout the known world and who had taught and wrote and circulated their letters, after the immediate death of the apostles, in this era, there are men who had been taught by the apostles themselves and who are now starting to write and are the first uh, theologians, the early church fathers of this new and quickly expanding movement, Christianity. The early church fathers... When it pertains uh, to the death of Christ or the work of Christ, this period is a period of little explanation. 
The early church fathers repeated biblical phrases that talked about the death of Christ and its importance, but little explanation was given theologically to how the death of Christ actually functioned. Specifically prominent in the language of the early church fathers was the language of redemption through the blood of Christ. They spoke of this all the time. The second major era is known as the Apologist, from 150 to 300. And in this era, there is a period of development, and really a period of development on two fronts, in the Eastern Church and the Western Church. In the Western Church, there was a theologian, his name was Tertullian. And Tertullian and the Western Apologist understood the death of Christ in light of the Old Testament teaching of a sacrifice. That is the main language they used, that the death of Christ was a sacrifice. They focused on the death of Christ in terms of what it was, in terms of what it was. It was a sacrifice. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, this is the way it worked. There were all kinds of sins and uh, all types of things that you could do that would make you unclean, that weren't specifically sins, but that would pollute you if you touched a dead body. Anything that you came into contact with that was associated with death. And so the sacrificial system was a way to do what is called atonement, to cover up that which was unclean or made you polluted or that which was sinful, a way to have atonement so that God would look over your sin. He would cover it up. He would look over it so that you could be in fellowship, in communion, in the presence of God. Tertullian looked at the Old Testament imagery of sacrifice and he said, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has made a sacrifice for our sins so that God can look over our sins and so that we can be in his presence. Tertullian looked at verses like Romans chapter 3, verse 25, which says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The Eastern theologians, uh, most famously led by Origen, viewed the death of Christ not from what it was, but from the perspective of what it accomplished. The Western theologians focused on the death of Christ in relationship to what it was, a sacrifice. The Eastern theologians focused on the death of Christ in terms of what it accomplished. They focused on it specifically in terms of the death of Christ attaining victory over the forces and the powers of evil. Victory over evil. They looked at how the death of Christ built a new identity within those who were Christian with Jesus. And they looked at it as a, and this is the crucial term for the Eastern theologians, they looked at the death of Christ as a ransom that had been paid to the captor so that we could be set free, a ransom. They looked at verses like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where the text Paul says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Origen, very famously, and this was a very popular view in the early church, took it a step further, and he looked at Uh, the death of Christ, not just as a ransom from sin, but he looked at the death of Christ specifically as a ransom payment that was made to the devil. 
a ransom payment that had been made to the devil. Origen looked at verses like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, where uh, the author of Hebrews says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity, so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Later theologians would very much disagree with Origen and say, we are not held captive to the devil. The devil does not hold power over us. It is sin that we've willingly given ourselves up to that is our captor. And so the theologians of later years would very much disagree with Origen, and it's not a very popular view today. But in this early period, the period of the apologists, the understanding of the death of Christ was really twofold. It was a ransom payment, and it was a sacrifice of atonement, of covering, so that we could be in communion, so that we could be in the presence of God. The third major era of uh, theology, as it pertains to the death of Christ, is the era of the theologians, 300 to 600. This is an era of continuation. The theologians continued to view the death of Christ in terms of these two crucial terms, sacrifice in the West and ransom in the East. One of the most famous theologians of all time, his name was Augustine, wrote something that was particularly beautiful that I want to read to you, and I have it up on the screen. Uh, He wrote it in his book, The Trinity, when he was speaking about the death of Christ and specifically the death of Christ as a sacrifice. He said four things are to be considered in every sacrifice. So you got to think with me for a second. This is not the moment to doze or to let your mind wander. Four things are to be considered. To whom the offering is offered, by whom it is offered, what is offered, and for whom it is offered. All right? By whom, to whom it is offered, by whom it is offered, what is offered, and lastly, for whom it is offered. Augustine goes on to say, the same one and true mediator himself reconciled us to God by the sacrifice of peace. So who was the sacrifice offered to? To God the Father. He goes on to say, and might remain in himself with him, or might remain one with him to who he offered. So in other words, the offering was made to God the Father, but he is one in the same substance with God the Father. So Jesus made the offering to God, of which he is also God. And that he might also make those one in himself, that those who he is making the offering for might make one himself for whom he offered, himself might be one, both the offer, that is the, the uh, one who is making the offering, and the offering itself. Do you see what he's saying? This is kind of complex language. Augustine is saying that Jesus is making the offering to God, and he is God. Augustine is saying that the offering itself is Jesus, and that he is also the one making the offering itself. And so Augustine took this language of sacrifice, and he just explained it in a way that would make it more comprehensive and more understandable, I think. Did you understand him? In summary, the theologians believe that Christ died 
as a sacrifice. Now listen to this very closely. To satisfy or appease the wrath of God. It was a sacrifice that merited the release of humankind from the bondage of sin. You see those two ideas. Ransom, merited release from the bondage of sin. And sacrifice, a sacrifice that satisfied the one to whom the sacrifice is being made to. That is satisfying his wrath. That doesn't sound very popular today at all, does it? That is how the theologians understood the death of Christ. The, la- the next period, the fourth period of uh, church history is referred to as the medieval period and encompasses the, wide, the longest section of years, 600 to 1500. And this is really a period of new thought. And while there were many theologians, there were two that stick out in particular that I want to draw your attention to as it pertains to the death of Christ. The first theologian's name is Anselm of Canterbury, who is the first to combine the ideas of sacrifice and ransom into a theological uh, synthesis, a system of an understanding of the death of Christ. And his theory of what Jesus died for, his theory of what it means in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it says Christ died for us, was called the satisfaction theory. He taught that God's honor had been violated at the fall. When mankind chose to sin, it violated the honor of God. And therefore, humankind had fallen into disgrace and alienation from God. Anselm believed that humanity must make amends. Amends to God's honor so that their relationship with God could be restored. Yet, Anselm also believed that mankind did not possess what they needed to make amends. Does this make sense? Anselm believed that amends must be made so that their relationship with God could be restored. But he believed that humanity could not do it. They were incapable of it. In other words, Anselm would say something like this, and I'll read you a quote in a bit. Anselm would say, God has the power to make amends for what is wrong, but it is not right that he should do it because he's not the one that's dishonored the relationship. Mankind should make amends, but they do not possess the ability. They do not possess the power to do it. And so the problem for humanity is twofold, as I simply described. God cannot simply forgive us because it would violate his honor and his righteousness. And yet, humanity cannot make amends, for they are incapable. Anselm found his solution in what we looked at last week. And in this way, we see how closely these two ideas are connected. He found his solution into, uh, if you were here last week, what is called a Chalcedonian understanding of who Christ is. And I know that's big language. Here's all this means. He found his solution and an orthodox understanding of the person of Christ, that Jesus was fully human, fully divine, two natures existing in one person. And here was his solution. I'll read to you from his book, Why God Became Man, which is very famous. For God, as he was writing about the necessary sacrifice needed to heal the sin of mankind, Anselm wrote, For God will not do it because he ought not, and man because he cannot. 
Therefore, that God and man may do this, it is needful that the same person shall be perfect God and perfect man. Who shall make this satisfaction? Since he cannot do it unless he be very God, nor ought unless he be very man. You see what Anselm is saying, and this is really important as we look at different theories in just a moment. Anselm is saying that the death of Christ accomplished something objective, that there was something that needed to happen. God's honor needed to be renewed and restored. Not that God's honor was lacking, but mankind needed to restore honor to God. And so the death of Christ did something real in reality that if it had not happened in that particular way, by those means, could not have been accomplished. That's what Anselm believed, that the death of Christ changed things. Along the same time, just a little bit later, but they were contemporaries uh, in the way that I might be contemporary with many of you in this room. I'm 30 years younger, yeah? In the same way, another theologian whose name was Peter Abelard came onto the scene and started to teach a view of the death of Christ that was in direct contradiction to what Anselm had said. Abelard's theory was known as the moral influence theory. And again, I'm not going to give you a test on this, but it's fascinating. I hope you think it's fascinating. Abelard taught that salvation could not be free if a price had to be paid to get it. Do you understand what I mean? Salvation could not be free if a price had to be paid to get it. But let me tell you this. As Christians, we do not believe that salvation is free, do we? We believe that salvation is by grace. That's a very big, big difference. In other words, salvation is free to you and to me, but it is not free. Someone paid that price. So Abelard looked at the Bible. They all look at the Bible. He looked at the Bible and he saw the free quality of salvation, that mankind must do nothing to get it. And he thought to himself, it cannot be true that the death of Christ changed anything objectively, for if a price had to be paid, then salvation cannot be free. And so Abelard taught this, that humanity's problem was not sin, that in fact, humanity really didn't have a problem. Their only problem was that they had lacked good moral examples of what it looked like to love. Humanity's problem was a lack of love. Christian, distinctly Christian teaching teaches that humanity has a problem and the problem is sin. Sin by nature, sin by practice. And this may seem abstract and theological at this time, but if you cheat on your spouse and you go to her and say, I'm sorry, I just didn't have a good example of love in the past, you're probably going to get a different response than if you had said, I have sinned against heaven and earth and against you. Does this make sense? So Abelard looked at the death of Christ, and when he looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Christ died for us, what he meant was that Christ died to give us an overwhelming example of what love looks like that would be so overpowering that humankind would simply follow an example and love others better. 
Do I wish that others would love others better? Of course. But it seems like pie in the sky thinking to the extreme as we look at the news every day, which I don't do very often because I deal with depression easily enough anyway, to think that all we need is a better moral example. So Abelard, in his view, taught that really the death of Christ changed nothing. And later theologians would look at what Abelard said and say this, if this really is true, then the death of Christ was unnecessary. (laughs) And they said even further, what kind of God would subject their son to this kind of level of torture if it was unnecessary? Now, while Abelard had suggested something new, the church continued to see the death of Christ in light of an of the understanding that Anselm had, that something had changed in result, objectively changed as a result of what Christ did on the cross. The fifth era of theology, or the fifth area of church history, is the early modern period. This era is famous, for in it one of the most important uh, events happened in church history, the Reformation. And so within a lot of my slides, this is a period of division, but just as we saw last week, the division between Catholic and between Protestant is not the division that occurred as it relates to the death of Christ in this era. The the Catholics and the Protestants generally saw the death of Christ in the same terms. They have different ways of describing it, but both had a understanding of of the death of Christ that followed in the tradition of Anselm, that something had changed as a result of the death of Christ, not Abelard. And so while the reformers understood Anselm's theory in a little different way, they basically believed something very similar. Where Anselm believed that it was the honor of God that had been violated The reformers thought it was not the honor of God that had been violated, it was God's righteousness that had been violated. And it was the reformers, John Calvin and Martin Luther, who introduced a new theory of the death of Christ that is called the the penal substitution view. The penalty, penal, and a substitution. That Christ died in our place for our sins, and paid the penalty of those sins on our behalf. Very similar to Anselm, except Anselm understands that it's God's honor. The Reformers understand it's God's righteousness. But the division in this period, although the Reformers introduced something new, both Catholics and Protestants understood the death of Christ in the terms of Anselm roughly. But there was a new strain of thinking that came on the scene that followed in the tradition of Abelard during this scene. And so the division in this era is not between Protestants and Catholics as it pertains to the death of Christ, but as it is in uh, the differences between the liberal Christianity and and conservative Christianity. When I use the language liberal Christianity, I'm I'm simply meaning this, that They had left an understanding of who Christ is and what he had did that had been shared for the previous 1,500 years with very few 
exceptions, Abelard being one. And they had moved in a direction in their understanding of the death of Christ that changed its meaning. Perhaps the most famous person that came on the scene in this era was a man by the name of Hugo Grotius. Hugo Grotius. And Hugo Grotius taught what was called the governmental theory of the atonement. In slight difference to Abelard, here's what Grotius taught. He taught, and perhaps you've heard this before, he taught that God was free to relax his law. That God's law is not something that is set in stone, but that God can change it. And so if you do something that's wrong, God can simply relax his law and forgive you. He can just say, well, that's not a big deal. You know, I'll just let it go. Grotius taught that this type of God was able to uphold the universe and keep it in balance because he was in charge of the universe, which sounds pretty good, doesn't it? He was in charge of the universe. And so he could change the rules as he saw fit. And in his ability to change the rules, he could relax the rules and forgive us of our sins with nothing being needed. For Grotius, his view of the atonement went something like this. God can relax his law, and he can forgive us, but if he does so all the time, the world will descend into chaos. And so God needs to show us how serious sin is. And so he sent Christ to die on the cross to show us how much God hates sin. Nothing had really changed with the death of Christ, except it was a very graphic, bloody example of God's hatred for sin. And Grotius believed that humanity was saved when it takes this warning seriously, the death of Christ, and therefore tries to live a good life. Isn't that something? The late modern period is a period of further division. It's the sixth and final period, so that means I'm close to being done, so you can all sigh. The sixth and final period is a division further between conservative and liberal strands of Christianity. The philosophical and scientific advancements of the Enlightenment brought into question the viability of Christianity as it had been traditionally defined. And so a further dividing line was drawn in the sand. On one side were those who sought to redefine Christianity so that it would be more palatable, more acceptable to the masses. And on the other side were those who sought to reword but defend a traditional understanding of Christianity, the conservatives. The liberal side of Christianity sought to redefine it by understanding the death of Christ in terms of Abelard and Grotius as an inspiring illustration of patience and love for humanity, that nothing has really changed as a result of the death of Christ. And the conservative side of Christianity sought to defend a traditional understanding of the death of Christ, similar to Augustine and Anselm and the Reformers as a substitutionary sacrifice, satisfying the love and the justice of God. 
So we have seen, believe it or not, what is a very, very, very brief history of what the church has believed about the, dirt, uh, the death, the work of Christ. I want to spend the remaining time we have together examining briefly what the Bible says about what did Christ's death accomplish. And we'll do this by explaining the short statement that we have on our website under our beliefs as it pertains to the work of Christ. And the statement is this, and you'll notice the themes of the reformers and the themes of the conservative side of Christianity as you hear it. Our statement is this, that we believe that Jesus died as our innocent substitute to satisfy both the justice and the love of God. So let me develop that statement in three different ways. This statement really breaks down into three sentences, yeah? First, Jesus died as our innocent substitute. He died as our innocent substitute. When we look at the teaching of the Old and New Testament, and there's passages I won't even turn to, most famously Isaiah chapter 53. But as we look at the teaching of the Old and New Testament, we see that as the Old Testament looked forward to the death of Christ and the New Testament looks back on it, that the New Testament and Old Testament agree that the death of Christ was an innocent sacrifice in place of another, a substitutionary sacrifice. uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle says this, He himself bore our sins. He took them on himself in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been feared. By his wounds, we have been healed. For Peter, this is not the language of Grotius and Abelard, that this is just a good moral example. For Peter, the death of Christ was something substitutionary in its very nature, in our place. He himself bore our sins to satisfy the righteousness of God. We see also in Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Paul says that God made him who had no sin, an innocent sacrifice, to be sin for us, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering, Offering a sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A Christian understanding of the death of Christ does not see it as accomplishing nothing, it sees it as substitutionary on our behalf. The second part of this statement is that Jesus died to satisfy the justice of God. In contradiction to Grotius. The Christian understanding of the justice of God demands that there be a penalty for sin to satisfy the justice of God. In other words, if God were simply to relax his standard, he would no longer be God, for God is just. Does this make sense? We see Paul develop this idea in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And if you stayed in your Bibles at Romans 5, 8, all you need to do is turn the page to page 913. But notice how Paul describes 
what the death of Christ has done to satisfy the justice of God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteousness, righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the works of the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is that the death of Christ covers the past, the present, and the future sins of every single one of us who place our faith in Christ. He had left the sins beforehand unpunished. In other words, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was just a picture of what will come and only worked in any way because of the future reality of what Christ would do. But the death of Christ satisfies the nature of God, his justice. But the death of Christ not only satisfies his justice, the death of Christ satisfies the love of God. For God is both just and loving in perfect harmony. To speak of his love as over and above of his justice would be to have a mutated version of God and to speak of his justice without his love would be to have a mutated view of God. For it is God's love who drove him to send his son. Remember Romans 5, 8, if you're still there, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And most famously, perhaps of all, for God so loved the world, yes, that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as we, this morning in these gray chairs, reflect on what did Jesus' death accomplish, I hope to leave you with a picture that fills your heart with joy. For the death of Christ is not just a good example for us. For in the very good news of what Christianity teaches are these themes. You are more sinful than you thought. And you have a problem. And God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And rather than causing and making you pay a price for sin that you cannot pay and survive, he had sent his son out of his great love in satisfaction of his justice so that the penalty of your sin might be paid for. You may be thinking this morning, Am I really as bad as all that? And the Christian answer to it is, absolutely you are. But that is not a teaching that should take you down a road of depression, but a teaching that should fill your heart with joy. For although you are worse than you ever thought, 
you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. And the death of Christ proves it, not as an example, but as a substitutionary sacrifice where God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. And next week, we'll take some time to reflect on how you experience salvation as a result of what Christ has done on your behalf. It is so beautiful. Let me pray for you this morning. For uh, God, we just pray that you would uh, help us to clearly see and understand who